0: We are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of truth, free speech, and open debate in the Empire of Lies capital, Washington, D.C., and on the radio there, on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. This is the Backstory. In case you haven't heard the big headline now is that Queen Elizabeth is dead at age 96. She's passed in Scotland. Liz Trust made that announcement. And it's now King Charles over there. Have you heard that, Rod? Yeah, I've heard that, Lee, that yeah. That we have King Charles. It, it's no longer Prince Charles, so be careful. So... It's one of those situations where you can't say something nice, you shouldn't say anything. So moving on, uh, we have a great show today, Rod. In the first hour, we have joined from Russia by our friend Mark Zabona. In the second hour, we're joined from America by Tara Reid, the great activist, and we'll be talking about a whole bunch of stuff going on with her. All show, we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. This is The Backstory. So, I think the big headline today, and it's hardly a headline. I see none of the major news places coming. But we know that the UN, uh, forgive me, we know that NATO is going to be seeking a new uh, leader soon I think it's the general secretary is the leader and there was a report today on CBS that they are looking at a Nazi a Nazi liar to head their group which seems to me rather perfect Christina Freeland whose grandfather was there's no doubt about this We've talked about it before and we'll talk about her again and we'll have more on her tomorrow. But Liz Freeland, who's the deputy I think the vice prime minister forgive me, the vice prime minister of Canada. Christina Freeland, whose grandfather, Michael stromiak was I won't even say say Rod is someone who works for the Nazis a Nazi collaborator or a Nazi? Uh,
1: that's a good question, Lee. To me, if you're affiliated with that, I would say you're a Nazi. So someone like George Soros, even though he was helping them, I would say pretty much he was a Nazi as well.
0: And what if someone was, we have the receipts, was on the payroll, running a newspaper, a, a very anti-Jew newspaper, a newspaper? That went on its way to demonize Jews in Poland and a lot of them got killed. I would say that's not a collaborator. That's a Nazi,
1: right? That's what I would say, Lee. That's what I would say.
0: So, Michael Chomiak was a Nazi. Then, after World War II, he was a Nazi war criminal on the run, but he ran to Canada where he grew up near his granddaughter Christina and it was a big influence on her according to her but when she was asked about it a few years ago she straight up lied she said in fact let me add something do you remember what she said Rod when asked about her Nazi grandfather
1: Well, it's been a while Lee Um, I think she just downplayed it somewhat Uh, I think she just watered it down and downplayed it but um, recall my memory
0: Actually, her response was was telling in the the wake of recent events. She called it Russian disinformation and election interference. Do you notice a pattern?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was about to say that's the establishment's uh, narrative right there whenever they're caught in something.
0: And I'll put it like this. It's a pattern. So she lied about Russia, a country that, if she was head of NATO, would be at war with. Do you think you can have someone running an organization, A, who's a Nazi, because she's a Ukrainian Nazi. She's a Banderaite, And if she's not, I've never heard her say so. I've never heard her say, I reject the teachings of Stefan Bandera. Now, she doesn't come out and see Heil or whatever, but she does do this Slavic-Ukraine thing. So, Christina Freeland is a Nazi, but furthermore, she lied about it, her grandfather. Her grandfather was definitely a Nazi, and we have, he was the editor of a newspaper in Krakow, Poland, and he kept extensive records of articles he assigned and writers and so on, and we have those records, and it's 100% clear. And she lied about it and lied about Russia. Do you think someone who's at war with Russia should be using them as cover for their own history? You know, that was. There is no benefit to the people of Canada or even Ukraine in Christian Freeland lying. Do you see what I'm saying, Rod? Who did, you, who did her lie benefit one person. Why herself. She want, right. Herself. So she lied about, and she blamed Russia falsely. And I don't think that person should be in charge of the potential nuclear war with Russia. Do, do you see what I'm saying?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure, Um, You know, I think this is... Uh like A maniac, you're putting a maniac in charge. Uh, this woman's been b- bred from birth to you know have some type of hate for Russia and want to destroy yes. uh any type of Russian heritage. So, you know, uh, you know, ho- hopefully the uh the truth comes out and maybe she won't uh become this NATO secretary general. But you know how the media works nowadays, so and plus she's you know she's she's under the feminist guise, so it's kind of like oh, we're putting more women in power, but this is a crazed woman.
0: Well, I'm going I'm I'm not gonna drop the story. We have more on it tomorrow, and I'm not gonna drop the story. There are some obvious pressure points because of his anti-Semitism. She's gonna answer for that. And I think she also needs to answer to the people of Poland. You know, Bandera was from Poland and he assassinated a Polish official and This guy, Michael Tromiak, was wanted by the Polish government until the 80s, and he was hiding out in Canada. And actually, Christian Freelands never answered for lying about this. And in the wake of Biden lying blatantly about something for his own benefit, again, Biden's lies about the laptop. Did he do that for America or the people of Delaware? Right. It's the same thing. It only benefited Joe Biden personally. And for him to blame Russia, I think people get the pattern. Do you agree?
1: I think a, a number of people are, are growing uh, attentive to it, but uh, I don't I don't think it's um, widespread enough. Lee. Uh, I think more people should, you know, whenever you hear, oh, that's Russian disinformation, that should be like, well, prove it. Prove it right now.
0: OK, then I'll hold up the picture of him sitting with Nazis, that might do it, But or his obituary, which says what he did uh, in nice terms, because it's an obit, but still, it says it in black and white, so there. And the other thing she's got going against her is she's very close to Klaus Schwab and the WEF. And obviously, a lot of people are aware of Klaus Schwab now. So her association with him won't make a lot of people of a certain pattern of thought. I, I don't know why to say it. Patriots will be real concerned about that. I think possibly even more so than the Nazi thing. But we'll keep talking about it. Now, speaking of which, my former boss, Steve Bannon, you saw that in New York, he was arrested, right, Rod?
1: Yeah, he turned himself in over the build-the-wall build the wall, build the wall um, fundraising camp, uh, stuff like that, yes. right?
0: Yeah. Now, lest anyone jump to defend him, don't jump to defend him. Look at the charges. And I'll also note, though, that you said it. He turned himself in. He was not raided, right? He did the normal thing. They asked him to turn himself in. They asked his lawyer, actually. So... That was a routine thing. And I thought it was interesting. Their, gre- uh, their tactics are less aggressive. Did you note that, Rod?
1: Yeah, I was, at, I was just actually thinking about that earlier. Lee, and, um, you know, it's kind of ironic that, you know, he just turns himself in and it's in the media. But uh, other people like um, Peter Navarro, they get arrested at the airport um, and nobody, nobody blinks an eye.
0: But Bannon did turn himself in. And again... I can talk about that at some point, because uh, I actually know something about these charges. And uh, it's pretty clear to me that Bannon is actually guilty of these. Now, in the court of law, he's innocent until proven guilty. But what I know personally, I think they're true charges. So they got one. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we're joined from Moscow by the great Mark Sobota. On the back we are back on the back story, and on one hundred five point five FM, AM thirteen ninety. In Washington, D.C. Joining us now from Moscow, Russia, our friend, the great
2: Mark Sloboda. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Hey, Lee. Thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Backstory. Well, thanks for staying up
0: with us in Moscow there. It's great to talk to you. Now, Mark, let me just ask you, do you know, did you hear the news about Christina Freeland possibly leading NATO? And do you know much about Freeland?
2: Uh, I indeed know about Freeland, and I've heard the joke that Canada is considering her for the next secretary general. That's really nice. But the next secretary general, as is every secretary general, has to first be approved by a 9 out of 10 vote of the UN Security Council, including no vetoes by its permanent members. And if you don't think that Russia or China would veto Christia Freeland, you've got another thing coming. So I would rate the chances of Christia Freeland becoming the next Secretary General of the UN as somewhat between negative 500 and. No, and I think Poland
0: should object. Her grandfather, Michael Tromiak, was hunted by Poland until the 80s, and he was living near Christina Freeland in Canada. While they were hunting him. And he was. He published a newspaper in Krakow. A very very. Uh, rabidly anti-Jewish. Newspaper. And now. Some people said. Well that's her grandfather. Well okay. But she lied about him. Like blatantly. Not and only, not,
2: yeah, Not only did she lie about him. And misrepresent. Uh, you know his past. That's one thing. But she has also marched in OUN, i.e., Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the organization that her father and Stefan Mandera, World War II era Nazi collaborator and Holocaust perpetrator, belonged to. She has marched at OUN protests in Canada, and she has personally carried the red and black banner of the fascist allied Ukrainian, West Ukrainian nationalists. That, to That's me, a is the blood, blood and pandemic. soil flag, right? Yeah, the blood and soil flag, yes. The same flag that is the flag of the right sector today. Yes.
0: Now, let me ask you something, because I think you'll be able to explain as well. A lot of Americans use the term, if they're asked, they'd say, I'm a nationalist. And that basically means, uh, I, again, I'm... I'm using a vague definition, but when most Americans say they're nationalists, that means they want border security. They oppose uh, the border do, being do, do,
2: do, do do Americans really say that these days? i mean, i I know Americans call themselves patriots,
0: but i I don't a lot of people a a lot of people on the right will will use the term nationalists okay because uh, but but they what they mean by nationalists is they think, Americans should be treated as a sovereign nation. Now, when a Ukrainian like Freeland says, I'm a Ukrainian nationalist, that doesn't mean they like their country, right? What does it mean?
2: Okay, so whatever the vagaries of American politics distortion of the term, what we're talking about with nationalism, it is the European ideology. That within the borders of a state, all the citizens of that state should belong to the same ethnic national uh, uh, identity, i.e. they should be of the same ethnicity. And the idea of nationalism is, um, you know, intrinsically enthrined with that ethnic and, you know, uh, if you want to extend it to racist um, uh, you know, qualifier. Um, and that I I believe that uh, I've read uh, enough papers out there that make the argument that of all the isms that emerged out of uh, Europe uh, in the, you know, the, the last few hundred years, that nationalism is the bloodiest ideology that uh, Europe has ever produced, bloodier than communism, bloodier even than capitalism. Nationalism and um it, the the war uh, that it has been going on in Ukraine for the last eight years and is going on still today after Russia's intervention in that ongoing civil conflict very much is a war about nationalism. Does
0: that, and that's a great explanation, Mark. Thanks for that because I think a lot of Americans hear that they'll hear Ukrainian nationalists and go. Okay, she likes your country. That's not what it means. And that's not what what, it means. What
2: what it means is that everyone in Ukraine should have belonged to the same nation, i.e. Ukraine for Ukrainians, not for Hungarian Ukrainians, not for Russian Ukrainians, just for Ukrainians. And intrinsic with that is the idea of uh, everyone should speak the same language, everyone should speak. And you know this is in a country where uh, some 20% of the population in Ukraine is ethnic Russian. And before 2014, half of the country spoke Russian as their native language and spoke Russian at home on a daily basis, more than 50%.
0: Now, let me ask you, we're going to go to an update on what's happening with the special military operation. First off, in Ukraine today, Anthony Blinken showed up unannounced. It was not a planned or announced trip to Ukraine, but he showed up in Kyiv and why do you think Blinken's there? Do you think he's I I think because it's unannounced, he's sending I'm guessing he's there to send a message of some kind what's your guess about what's going on with blinken
2: yeah i am sure that there are some secret marching orders uh, there is no uh you know question that the regime in kiev has very little agency um right now they are inv- involved in two major counter-offensive operations One in Kherson, which is not gone in the south, which has not gone very well for them at all and led to massive, massive casualties. And another one uh, just south of of Harakoff in the Azum area. Um, And that one, it it is still fierce fighting, mixed results, also very heavy casualties, and it's not clear. But we learned uh, in the last week from a report on CNN that the Ukrainian Southern counter-offensive had been planned and war-gamed out by the Pentagon. <laughs> I mean, they're even war-gaming out, you know, their their plans, and then had advised the uh, Kyiv regime on making adjustments. So w- we know who's really in charge there. And, you know, I'm sure that Blinken did not show up in Kiev just to officiate the latest of you know, the latest trance of tens of billions of uh, U.S. taxpayer dollars that have gone to the Kiev regime and military aid, that there's nothing new. You know, there's a new package every week or two. So there must be some type of, um, you know, um, secret marching orders. Uh, uh, and I suspect that it's probably related to the two offenses.
0: Now, uh, speaking of the Kursan offensive, I heard a rumor today that Ukraine was stopping that. It's been going ab- about a week, a little more. And you, as you yeah. say, reports are not going
2: well. Had
0: you heard they'd suspended that operation?
2: Yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to see some official suspension, right? And there's, there's, there's never going to be any admission of how bad it has gone. And fighting will still occur in the area, right? It's not like all fighting is going to end. But the major push of uh, a military push of a counteroffensive seems to be de facto over. They did not achieve any of the results that they wanted. Small breach in Russian lines that they made actually seems to have been engineered as part of a trap uh, by Russian forces, lulling them into a killbox, and uh, where the vastly uh, advantageous uh, Russian artillery. And uh, uh, Russian air superiority uh, led to massive casualties among the Ukrainian troops. Unlike in the east of the country, where the conflict in the Donbass, the Donbass is about tight urban, urban agglomerated areas where one settlement rolls into the next, and continually punctuated by big Soviet-built factories. And these big Soviet factories, like Azovstal. They're they're built like fortresses, literally with World War with uh, nuclear uh, uh, bunkers beneath them, right? Cold War era bunkers, um, and on top of that, the Kiev regime connected everything together with uh, multiple defensive layers on layers of steel and concrete fortifications for eight years. So that is the toughest terrain in the country. Right. When that's gone, there's nothing comparable. But in the south, it's just big, flat, open step cut by a few rivers. That's it. Right. The settlements there, the settlements that are being fought over, they're like one lane, uh, you know, one lane towns with with maybe 30 buildings. Right. They're, they're nothing. Um So. Um, and all of the people have long since fled this area, so there's really very little, uh, you know, uh, concern or need to be be concerned on either side for civilian collateral damage. Instead, this is just, you know, what the Kiev regime hoped to do is to overwhelm the fires heavy Russian battalion tactical groups by basically trying to rush as fast as they could at them with, with very lightly armed because I mean, they used whatever they had, but it's basically old Polish T-72s and uh, APCs and infantry fighting vehicles from the West. But they're suffering a 15 to one deficit in terms of artillery. They've got no aircraft that can stay in the air because Russia has complete air superiority over that area. And um, it just becomes a turkey shoot. I, I'm, anyone who's paying attention to Telegram, at least not to the mainstream media, but can see all the videos that are out there of Ukrainian equipment. You know what they had just drum, trundling along across open, flat step and being blown to smithereens by by uh, uh, Russian artillery, rocket systems uh, and uh, aircraft and drones. So, um, the morgues and the hospitals in the nearby cities under Kiev regime control, Nikolaev, Odessa, and Krivoy Rok uh, from the north where the attack was originated, they're, they're just overflowing. And, and the casualties are uh, grim. It, it's grim. It's not something to celebrate whatever side you're on because this is the flower of Ukrainian youth. That is having their lives thrown away. And for all intention purposes, it was known. I mean, the Ukrainian uh, chief, uh, general chief of staff, uh, Valery Zaluzhny, uh he is their commander in chief, uh, he didn't want to launch this operation. That is everything we've heard out of the Ukrainian media saying this. This because he knows that all of these troops being spent in counteroffensive would be much more effective in actual defense. This is actually playing into Russia's hands. You take these troops, these, you know, lightly, light, in comparison, lightly armed, uh, poorly trained conscripts in many cases out of their what defenses they have and make them rush across open step against someone with a big fires advantage. That's a suicide run. Right. That's that's awful. But Zelensky evidently ordered this and it, it was made right after a trip by Boris Johnson. Uh, just before uh, Liz Truss was uh, made the uh, new uh, United Kingdom's prime minister. And um, every indication that this, it was basically Zelensky was told, you have to show us some kind of successes uh, because uh, there is a big donors conference uh, today. the, The Ramstein Five is meeting in Europe And these are the five biggest NATO uh, suppliers of military uh, donations uh, to Kiev. And um, if they want anything else, anything else substantial, they had to show they were capable of something. So I believe that he sent thousands of Ukrainian youth to their death, not even for a strategic military reason, but for a political symbolic reason. And that is a crime and a tragedy.
0: Now, the other offensive operation they launched is apparently an attack on the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant.
2: And Okay, that, yeah, that's not yeah. an offensive. That was a commando raid. But yeah. yeah, there's that also.
0: Well, that's why I called it an operation. I was trying to—but thanks for pointing that out. But them lobbing missiles at nuclear power plant— now, Zelensky recently stopped about, talked about that, and he said, actually, he's in favor of a nuclear conversation if it means Russia would get out of there, which is insane. Did you see that by Zelensky?
2: Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, what happened was, all right, so the Zaporozhian nuclear power plant is the largest nuclear plant in Europe, one of the 10 largest in the world, and before you know, until just recently, in fact, it supplied 20 percent of all of Ukraine's electricity, just this plant, and and also provided them some for export to Europe. Um, it is uh, on the south side of the uh, kohovka Dnieper Reservoir, a big body of, of water coming off of the Dnieper. the south side of The reservoir uh, and the power plant has been controlled by Russia since the beginning of the intervention, since early March, and the north side is still controlled by Kiev. And a little over six weeks ago, Kiev started attacking the nuclear power plant, started attacking the grounds of it with artillery and with suicide drones in the attempt to create some type of international incident. Right. Um, And um, it's insane, of course. I mean, the Ukrainian staff is still running the plant. They haven't been removed by Russia. Right. They're they're locals. They're 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 still running the plant. And up until uh, last week, the plant was still supplying electricity to Kiev regime controlled parts of Ukraine as well. Russia didn't cut that off because as they see it, their war isn't with the Ukrainian people. It's with this U.S.-backed regime that seized power in the country in 2014. Uh, but now, because of the shelling, the intensity over at the last week, the Kiv regime actually shelling, actually knocked down all of the their electrical, the lines that supply electricity from the plant to the rest of uh, uh, the country, to the, the regime-controlled parts of the country. So now uh, they've they, you know, it's it's not as Victor Orban brilliantly put it with uh, in with regard to the uh, Western sanction regimes. It's not so much that we shot ourselves in the foot. It's that we shot ourselves in the lungs, uh, which I think, you know, I, I I can't say I'm a big fan of Victor Orban on everything. But I, I think that is uh, a very good uh, allegory there. So um, last weekend, as the International Atomic Energy Agency inspection team was supposed to arrive to check that everything was still safe in terms of the uh, physicality of the plant and operations. Um, The Kim regime attempted a daring, if harebrained, commando raid to seize control of the plant. Something, it's it's a fantastical, uh, you know, mission impossible script. That could only have been written in Hollywood or, from what I've heard, in the halls of MI6 in the UK. Um, So they sent – there were two uh, attacking waves. The first one was uh, a number of speedboats that crossed the reservoir um, with some 60 commandos on them and landed a couple miles upstream of the plant. And then there was supposed to be a second wave, a slower wave coming around the other side of the plant on barges that were supposed to carry a couple hundred uh amphibious uh uh troops from amphibious tactical teams. But I mean, this sounds you know pretty impressive. Unfortunately, of course, like with everything else, Russian intelligence got word of it, and uh those commandos were met by k a fifty two attack helicopters and a ring of Russian Spets knots supplementing the plant's guards and were cut down to nothing. A few of them were taken captive, uh, two of them in critical condition. And then the barges never even made it to shore with the larger teams. They were gunned down on the water. And then two days later, Kiev tried the same thing again, the exact same plan. They tried it again, this time with a couple of the IAEA inspectors still actually on site. And once again, Russia was ready, and they sent some 60 speedboats this time, and half of them were gunned down on the water, and the rest of them tried to turn tail and head back up to the northern shore, the the Kiev regime uh, shore of the reservoir, and uh, they were pounded there by Russian artillery as they tried to land. So uh, all told of this, have probably lost several hundred of their best troops, right? What special forces they had left, um, some foreign mercs, evidently. And um, I, I've seen the pictures of the bodies that have washed up uh, on the southern shore of the Ukrainian troops, just in large numbers. And it, again, it's grim. It's, it's not something that anyone can or, or should celebrate, even in a war.
0: And you saw the person— from the IAEA, who thanked the Russian Federation in a press conference,
2: and yeah, that was that was actually the spokesman for the UN Secretary General. Yes, yes. on behalf. Of- yes,
0: and that's I would say a tacit acknowledgment that in fact the the people doing the attacking of the plant were the Ukrainians, but he didn't come out and say it. But I still consider
2: now, that these, a big yeah, mission. These institutions are, are very political, right? You're you're, you're not a—everyone was hoping that they would point out, right? The, the Ukrainian argument, I mean, they've been arguing that it's the Russians shelling themselves in the plant, right? That they're firing out from the plant to hit us because they know we can't hit back. And they're firing in at themselves at the same time, right? This ridiculous argument. Um, but you know, it's the same argument actually that Kiev has been making for the last eight years of the conflict. Those, those poor, uh, those, uh, dumb pro-Russian separatists in Donbass, they keep shelling themselves all the time. We've never hit anyone, right? I mean, literally they've made that argument and the Western media reports it. And then it says, and we just can't really tell who was firing, you know, this ridiculous, uh, you know, um. Uh, signing off on 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 the Kim regime's lies and this one you know only an idiot believes this they don't even believe this and they've actually i mean you don't even have to believe someone you know from russia or eastern ukraine on this all you have to do is trust the ukrainian ministry of defense because on their at the, the very beginning of the attacks on the nuclear power plant the very first one was done by kamikaze suicide drones. And the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense actually announced it on their own official telegram, a social media channel. They put out they, that proudly that they hit Russian uh, you know, uh, troops on the grounds of the nuclear power plant uh, with suicide drones. And then only later did they change their line that, oh, no, 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 it wasn't us. It's the Russians bombing themselves with suicide drones. Uh, it's it's sad, uh, and and the fact that the Western media doesn't question any of this tells us that they're not journalists at all. It's all just pure geopolitical propaganda and stenography. Also, couldn't they look at, at the missiles and see yes. the origin where uh, where the yes, missiles? The,
0: the, does Russia r- has does pres- Russia use any American weapons? weapons?
2: No, of course not. And they have presented, you know, the shells you know the manufactured in the US the artillery shells um uh and the rockets that have been used and the drones that have been used and the argument back is oh russia planted those <laughs> so i mean it, you know you it, we're, we're living in a sea of disinformation right where the the meme is the reality so uh it, you will believe what you want to believe but you know uh it I don't I don't even think that the Kiev regime's own supporters and trolls and whatnot actually believe this cockamamie uh, uh, bit of really cynical propaganda. Uh, I, I just think, you know, you, you kind of have to go with it once you've gone there.
0: But you pointed out before, because you were in the U.S. Navy as a nuke, so you know something about nuclear power. It, Kiev is essentially using the plant as a, if if they succeed, it's going to be a
2: dirty bomb. Is that right, Mark? Yeah. If if they hit the spent nuclear, fac- like on the grounds of the plant, the plant is actually pretty robust, right? It's uh, got big sheet, uh, like domes around the reactors that are you know reinforced concrete with steel that are one point five meters thick. That are they're they're made to withstand earthquakes. And direct hits by explosives. Practically the only thing that could penetrate them directly is uh, maybe maybe a direct tactical nuke strike. Uh, that might do it. Um, but um, the cooling lines that run to the reactors are more vulnerable. And one of the big other vulnerable areas is on the grounds of the nuclear power plant, there's a place where they store the used, the spent nuclear fuel rods, um, and they are kept in, um, they're also pretty robust containers, but not something that is still more vulnerable than elsewhere. And if they hint some of those spent fuel containers and manage to penetrate them, then there is the potential for a de facto dirty bomb attack, yes. But right now, there's only one reactor on the plant of the six uh reactors on the plant uh on the uh facility operating and it's operating at reduced capacity um and this is so that you know if if the you know shelling actually uh cuts off all electricity running to supply cooling water and there are redundancy systems diesel generators and so forth multiple redundancy systems but you don't want to have to rely on redundancy Certainly not for normal operations. So um, there's every possibility that Russia could be forced to just shut the whole plant down to avoid the type of of, uh, scorched earth nuclear incident that Kiev is evidently uh, desperately trying to provoke here.
0: Now, let's turn to the economic war, as you point out, the suicidal economic war against Russia by the West. I would call it a kamikaze economic war, except there's a, I understand there's been a conference in the past few days with a number of Eastern nations, Asian nations, and Russia meeting and talking about Myanmar made an energy deal with Russia, to Dubai. What's going on with that conference?
2: Yeah, uh, it's a, a conference, the Vladivostok Eastern Economic Forum. It's held every year. The purpose of it is recognizing, well, Russia, the largest country in the world, also borders on the Pacific. And Russia has long since realized that, you know, the area of economic dynamism in the world, you know, is Asia now, right? I mean, it, it, they, they've they called it the Asian century for, for good reason. So Russia has been trying to develop their eastern half or, you know, even just the far east there, um, you know, to to better participate uh, in this, you know, trade there and benefit from it. They hold a forum every year to encourage investment in Russia's uh, economy there, you know, and showcasing what they are are doing and can do more which is basically providing, uh, uh, you know, other things. But the big thing, of course, is providing energy and a lot of other resources to help these economies run. Uh, You know, Russia is, you know, the the biggest energy provider now to China, a big energy provider to Japan, to the Koreas, and increasingly to other countries. And some uh, 250 deals were signed on this. I mean, some 60 countries uh, in attendance at this economic forum, so much for the idea that the West can isolate Russia with their economic war of sanctions. Right now, it's only the West. I mean, the West is sanctioning Russia, but no one in Africa, no one in South America, South or Central America, right? They, no one, no one in Asia except for you know um, Japan and and South Korea, which are considered. Parts of the West, and even then, Japan's only. Both of them are only partially participating in sanctions. Japan's not participating in energy sanctions, and so on. Uh, so, but no other countries. And um, uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, they actually signed more deals than I thought they would uh, as a result of this forum. Uh, because I thought the sanctions might scare away uh, investment, but investment still occurred. And Russia is still, you know, countries like um, uh, China and India and, and Myanmar now just became the, you know, signed on for energy deals. They're buying ever more Russian oil and gas. And you know who else is buying Russian oil hand over fist? Who? Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Why would Saudi Arabia buy Russian oil? Because they're buying refined Russian oil. Uh, they use it for their own domestic purposes. And then they turn around and sell their own unrefined oil to the West for a higher markup. <laughs> so and even the West's own ally in Saudi Arabia is buying Russian oil hand over fist. It's hilarious.
0: And one of the big lies, of course, is that Russia is weaponizing energy. And uh, let's play a clip. This is... The U.S. press secretary talking about, and I'll bet you didn't know, there's shopping involved. Let's hear what the U.S. press secretary said, accusing Russia of weaponizing energy. Hit it.
3: To say this that what what we see russia's doing and we've been very clear about this is that they're using energy they're weaponizing energy and it's choosing to to one of the things that uh, has been out there to the shut down the pipeline of nordstrom one
0: now were you aware that russia shut down nordstrom one yes i was now how could they do that because i i bought some ties there they have nice ties and apparently a suit that aoc's wearing in the coverage gq but we'll talk about that later. Now, aside from the obvious, uh, she misspoke. I assume our press secretary knows the actual name, but mispronounced it. And
2: I can't yeah. criticize someone
4: it's for mispronouncing it.
0: It's,
2: it's, it's not Nordstrom, of course. It's Nord Stream. But, you know, um, you know what What do you expect from a, a U.S. press secretary? All right. So, um, so that's Russia goofy, is using. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, substantively. Russia who is weaponized energy let me ask you mark who is weaponized energy russia or the western powers
2: well i mean this is russia is weaponizing energy now as a response to western powers right um, they have weaponized their entire economies including their control of the global financial system swift payment system Uh, You know, the threat of of secondary sanctions on even insurance companies, shipping companies and everything. And um, here's the thing about energy is it's always a producer consumer relationship. Right. It ties them together. And, uh, you know, from early on, the Europe was saying we're going to do without Russian energy. We're going to do without Russian energy someday in the future. OK, so we're going to reduce by five percent for the next. Well, not now, but in four months time and so forth, you know, all these little deals and everything. Um, and, uh, you know, hey, they said they wanted to do without Russian energy. So they're just going to have it happen to them a little faster. <laughs> Russia is uh, using technical reasons for for shutting down uh the biggest of the pipeline, and it's important to remember that there are other gas pipelines running to Europe right now. Right, that's not the only one, there is also the Yamal pipeline through Belarus, the uh, Druzhba pipeline through Ukraine, the Turk stream through Turkey, those are still pumping gas. Right, uh, the Ukrainian one had a reduced uh, a capacity, of course, but that's on Kiev's fault terms. Um, but, um uh, there's still gas flowing, but Nord Stream 1 was the biggest, you know, the four, some 40% was being bumped through there, particularly to Germany. But Russia is using technical reasons. They're saying that there's problems with the turbine pumps uh, and some other equipment that is under contract to the German comp- company, Siemens, because Nord Stream was a joint ger- product be- uh, project between Russia and Europe particularly Germany, but other energy majors. And those pipes were supposed to be repaired by Siemens, evidently by contract, even in Canada. And those turbines could not be repaired now because they fall under sanctions. And Russia's pointing out the ridiculousness and the hypocrisy of all this by officially requesting that these pumps receive maintenance, which they can't because of sanctions. So Yes, Russia is weaponizing energy back, but they weaponized their entire economies, including their consumption of energy, uh, to Russia first. So now they're crying, you know, oh, outrage that Russia dares fight back with their economy. Well, (laughs) what 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 did you seriously expect?
0: Now, Mark, let me give you a hint. If you want to pander to Trump supporters, I'm going to tell you how to do it. Okay.
2: I, I don't Twitter. want to pander to Trump supporters.
0: But if Stop you me. do, I'll make you an expert on <laughs> <at> this. <laughs> All right. Okay. This is, All right. You, do. <laughs> you, you write a tweet and you say Trump was right. And then name something that Trump was right about. For instance, Trump was right. The laptop is real. Now, that's true. Right. And people like hearing that Trump said something that turned out to be right. But. A lot of people pandering to Trump supporters have said Trump was right about Russian energy and Germany.
2: Yeah, I, I've actually seen that pop up on my my Twitter mentions. Now that you you mention it, I I prefer not to pander to either Trump supporters or Biden supporters or any U.S. political supporters. You know, but you know, I she, I definitely see your point.
0: <laughs> you you see you see what I'm saying? It's pandering. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's a tweet that you do intending to get a lot of likes or retweets. It's not factual, though. And so any Trump supporters, I'm not a Trump hater. But the facts are Trump was wrong. Trump actually told Germany, a lot of people are saying he warned Germany they were dependent on Russian oil and energy, because a lot of this is about gas, not oil. But he was not right. What Trump did was he told Germany they should not trade with Russia because it's a contradiction being in NATO and opposing Russia. Am I correct that Trump's policy was and Trump tried to shut down Nord Stream 2, right,
2: Mark? Uh, Kind of half-heartedly, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I would say more his administration did. I don't believe that Trump ever actually had a whole lot of control over his own foreign policy. I mean, let, let's be frank. The neocons did, right? The neocons had control of Trump's foreign policy. He was told, you will appoint all of these neocons to run your foreign policy, or the senators will agree to impeachment trials against you. And Trump said, yeah, OK, whatever. I don't really care anyway. Just give me my wall you know, or, or something along those lines. Right. Uh, so um, yeah, his administration put forward kind of half hazard measures to stop Nord Stream 2, because anything seriously would have meant seriously sanctioning Germany as well, who was involved in the project. But, you know, uh, they came up with another way uh, to, um, uh, uh, you know, shut down Nord Stream 2. Anyway, uh, by you know, uh, you know the increased shelling of East Ukraine and the throwing away of the Minsk Accords, uh, provoking the Russian intervention anyway, which did the same job.
0: Well, uh, let me point out that uh, I I agree with your analysis, and I don't think Trump's gut or his inclination was to be anti-Russian, but he clearly was, and he's remained so. He's keep he keeps saying at rallies that he would have been tougher on Russia. And let me point out, why did Germany, why was Germany trading with Russia? They get a third of their gas, slightly less, from Russia. But why were they doing it? Were they doing it because, as Trump said, they were beholden to Russia? Or was it a trader relationship where Russia had a better deal?
2: Yeah, of course. I mean, the gas that Germany was getting from Russia was reliable. It had been sent all during the Soviet Union, and uh, it was, of course, much cheaper than whatever you know was uh, because of the proximity, if for no other reason, and being piped. Uh, U.S. LNG, for instance, is one is, is simply not available in the volumes that, is, that would be needed. Uh, and second of all, is more than twice as expensive. Right, so uh, obviously, continued trade with Russia made made more sense. Sorry, diversification to a degree, but uh, you know the, the truth is that a a whole lot of Germany's and the rest of Europe's prosperity for the last few decades has been built on having a fairly cheap, regular, reliable supply of gas, oil, and you know other energy from Russia. And they are destroying their own economies. There was just um, all of Europe's major steel plants are now on idle. And a group of the 40 biggest steel CEOs wrote a desperate letter to the uh, van der and the head of uh, the EU president right now, and said that we are at a existential crisis moment. And unless something changes immediately, we are facing the deindustrialization of Europe. They use those words. That's what we're facing right
0: now. now Mark, did you see this uh tourist bureau in tourists, which you know has you you can buy trips to Russia from them announced recently and this is my idea. I'm going to take credit for it. I said on this very show that what they should do is they should have hot shower tours of Russia for (laughs) Germans. And did you see that in tourist
2: companies actually doing that? Yeah, I I think that's trolling. I'm not sure how real it is, but I definitely saw the uh, the uh, social media post about it. Yeah, And um, not only that, but Gazprom actually put out their own video. Um, uh, for you know, the winter, I guess, showing winter arriving in Europe, and um, um uh, showing the gas being shut off, and the uh, there's a classic Russian song playing, and on the, on the lyrics is the winter will be very big, basically.
0: <laughs> now they may be trolling, but I'm going to tell you, Mark, there's an opportunity here because IKEA is open again. <laughs> Go go stock up on towels and get on Airbnb as soon as possible. Here's your headline. Shower with a side of crow.
2: Because <laughs> that- I, having having three crows at home, I'm gonna I'm gonna do without the side of crow if you don't mind. <laughs> right.
0: And if you want a bunch of freezing cold, sweaty Germans staying in a spare bedroom, there's an opportunity. Yeah to make some cash mark
2: i i am so enthusiastic about having some freezing sweaty germans in my spare bedroom yeah i but i think we, i'll pass
0: we always try to help so mark great conversation and packed with knowledge as usual thanks so much from moscow Mark a let's take a short break on the backstory back on The Backstory, the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm journalist Lee strand and this is Backstory. And so it's always great to talk to Mark Zoboda. Now, would you share a spare bedroom with Mark Sobota if you could get a hot shot rod, you personally?
1: Um... I don't know. <laughs> That's a tough question. Yeah, uh, assume don't no sweaty Germans. But if it's your bad and there's no Mark, like a good guy. You you'd hang on with them, right? No, no. Mark's definitely a great guy. So uh, you know, if I had, to, if I was in, over there in Europe, I uh, guess uh, I would need to go to Mark to get to get a hot shower. Then, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Apparently. So I thought that was great that in tourists is doing that. And it could be trolling, but whatever. A lot of people are gonna want to go someplace warm and with warm, wet water. And that's hard to say anything, by the way, Rod. So, coming up this hour, Tara Reid, and we'll be talking about AOC on the cover of GQ. Did you see that, Rod? AOC looking very spiffy. In black
1: suit. Yeah, I did see that, Lee, and um, I was a little confused. I thought GQ was a men's magazine, so I'm not saying that women can't be on the cover, but what was the point of AOC being on there? Gender bias. That's... Okay, and
0: we're joined now by guest host, co-host, the great Carter Laren. Hey, Carter, how you doing? I'm doing well, Lee. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for joining us. And, uh, Do you have any comment on
4: the AOC cover with GQ? You guys, uh, I heard you guys talking about it, so I had to look it up while I was sitting here, and now I'm staring at a picture of AOC in a suit, and uh, she's not, you know, her politics aren't any more attractive uh, than they were before, so not really sure. She's going to give us, it says, a conversation about masculinity, power, and politics, things she's an expert on, so that's great.
0: Right, and I don't think it's exactly showing uh, camaraderie with the working people.
4: The working people don't wear that suit, do they? Or, well, no, but AOC is not about the working people. She's about exploiting the the working people as a supposed representative, just like all Marxists do. Uh, they claim to represent the working people, and they uh, they just want to be in charge. No. So. Not there you angry. go. It's not surprising. So let's see.
0: Carter, can you do me a favor? Say the name of the show and watch what
4: magically happens. You're listening to The Backstory. Great job. So it's amazing. It happens every time. It's
0: not in my kitchen. I try it. I'm walking around all day and I say the backstory and nothing booms. It's weird. You, you should Carter, fix it. Did you, were you following the nutty story last night of the guy going around shooting people on Facebook Live in Memphis? Were,
4: did you catch that while it was happening at all? I, I didn't. I mean, I, I saw the story afterward, uh, but I didn't catch it while it was happening. And I actually don't know too many details of it. Uh, yeah, did they caught the guy, right? Eventually, yeah. Was there and a motivation but, that we know about yet?
0: Well, we have a social media. Apparently, he'd been in trouble lot the law before. So I think it was just chaos. Rod, you saw the footage, right?
1: Yeah, and I saw what he was talking about. I agree. I think it was just chaos. He was just trying to prove himself to who? I don't know. The internet, I guess.
0: Right. Mm. And, and so he got his 50 minutes of fame, as it were, 50 minutes of hate. But it was nuts, right, Rod? I mean, it was crazy. He was just walking into places... And shooting him.
1: Yeah, the one clip I saw, he walked into an auto zone. It looked like a man was walking to the cashier. You you know, he turns to see what, you know, this guy's walking towards him, and he just shoots him point blank. So, yeah, it was crazy.
0: Now, let's play the clip of the newscaster. This is a newscaster because Memphis famously also had a kidnapping and sexual assault and murder of a jogger recently. So Memphis, Tucker Carlson... Talks about Memphis. It's apparently the most dangerous city in the country.
4: Carter, have you heard of that? Uh, I have not, and that's surprising. You don't think of Memphis as a particularly dangerous country, especially when you're when you're in the Bay Area. You just figure Oakland is the most dangerous place on the planet. But uh, Memphis is a that's an interesting one.
0: Well, yeah, and I had a girlfriend who lived near there, and she talked about how dangerous it was, and she'd had some trouble in Memphis. But let's play the clip. I want you to listen to this. This is a newscaster going out live on the news. And see what you think of this. And I'll ask you a specific question about it after we hear the clip. Hit it. All righty. And I know.
3: Memphis is tired right now. is tired right now, the Eliza Fletcher kidnapping and abduction and murder, the other crimes we've had this year leading up to this, it's difficult right now. Bear with me, it's a very nerve-wracking night.
0: So she was obviously breaking down on the air, and what do you think of that? Do you think that's unprofessional, because I have no problem with a person showing emotion, as long as they're still presenting the facts.
4: I don't have a problem with it personally, but what do you make of that, Car? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to tell from only listening, but assuming that it's not performative, I don't have a problem with that at all. I mean, I think you know one of the one of the reasons that people are turning to a lot of uh, non mainstream outlets is because the the people that they connect with, the people that they that talk about the news, do so in a much more authentic uh, and personal way. And so, I think pretending to be a robot when you're giving the news is not a requirement. Objectivity is. Uh, But I think her breaking down is, you know, again, assuming it's assuming it's not performative, which does happen sometimes. uh, It doesn't sound that way. So, uh, yeah, I don't I don't have a problem with it. And I think, look, I mean, the U.S. does have quite a lot of problems. Our culture is uh, decaying. We are having increased, um, you know, unrest politically. We've got we've locked up a larger percentage of our population than than any country, basically. Uh, we are, you know, we're not, we're a culture that's hurting. So I think it's reasonable to expect that people with empathy are going to once in a while just break down when they're, especially if your job is to report on this stuff constantly.
0: I agree completely. I think real is the key word you said there. As long as it's a real emotion, then, and it does does not substitute emotion for facts i have no problem with it in fact i don't think i think we have a problem with real emotion in our society now as much as a problem with thought i think a lot of people don't know how to express emotions what do you think about
4: that carter yeah i think you're spot on i mean uh you know we can talk about how they don't know how to think but people talk about that a lot they they i think part of the problem i'm curious of your thoughts on this lee but it seems to me that part of the problem might be that with the advent of social media, uh, emotion has become a tool of manipulation rather than something that is uh, spontaneous and authentic. So a lot of people do perform emotion in order to manipulate audiences. And, of course, in the past, most of us didn't have an audience. We just had you know, our neighbors. And so it wasn't as... Uh, ingrained in us to try and manipulate everyone with emotion. Although, of course, certainly there are people that did that even in the past. But it seems to be like a more of a, a common thing now, where you know, emotion is used to manipulate. And I think that cheapens emotion. And uh, you know, think about how cynical I sounded saying, "Well, assuming it's not performative, I don't want to have to say that." But the fact is, it is often for- performative. And uh, I think you're spot on with that observationally. Well, I'll also
0: say. In people's defense, slightly, uh, when I lost my parents a few years ago, they my mom and then my dad died, what happened with me was the first time you tell someone, you know, a friend calls you, how you doing, I'm genuinely emotional, and I'm like, oh, my mom died, and, uh, you know, it's sad, she was in a home, and we lost her last night and I saw her before she died, and I'm genuinely emotional. But the problem is, other friends call you, and about the 10th person, I don't know if you've ever had the experience, or whether I'm a soul zombie, but about the 10th time, you, you've you got to tell them what's going on, because it's a big event in your life. But you're not actually feeling the emotion the way you did the first time.
4: Does that make sense, Car? Yeah, I mean, and I think that's natural. I've experienced that as well. Um, I mean, I think part of talking about it is part of processing it, right? So one of the reasons that you're not feeling it as strongly is because you are actually processing it by telling the first nine people. Um, but I don't know. Did you did you perform sad when you didn't feel sad? A little bit because I was I was sort of bored with it.
0: What I said to a friend of mine, and later when his father died, he said that was spot on. You almost want to have a T-shirt printed that says the whole statement. My mother died last night because otherwise I'm it's boring saying the same thing over and over. And you've got to go through the whole thing, the whole statement. And so what I performed was to try to not sound bored. Does that make sense? Yeah.
4: Yeah, I understand that. I think that makes I think that makes sense. But how I mean, let's assume that, that that you do have to do that a little bit. That that's not uh how often does something like that happen, right? It doesn't it's not often in your life that you feel like you're in this situation where you have to muster emotions you're not feeling at the at the moment. And and even in that case, there's a little bit of authenticity to it because you did actually feel them. It's not that you don't feel that way, it's just uh, you know, you're you're numb at that point. And see my authenticity is talking about it. You know,
0: I'm honest about what was going through my head and explaining it. So I think this is a form of authenticity right now. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, we we, don't—we either give too much credence to emotion or dismiss it altogether if it's the wrong emotion as a culture. So I think— um, you know, we we use it as an epistemological replacement uh, in some cases, which it shouldn't be, uh, and then in other cases, uh, it's just kind of not allowed, um, or or a manipulation tool, like I said earlier. So, um, yeah, I, I I don't know, I don't know about this particular anchor, but I can understand. And frankly, you know, if you stop and think about some of the stuff that's happening, I mean just just take, you know, sometimes it's hard to 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 think about when you look at a statistic, right, and you see this number of people were killed by communism or this number of people were, were murdered in this mass shooting or whatever, whatever it is, sometimes it's hard, the numbers are sometimes big enough in statistics or they're distant enough that it's hard to really understand. But, you know, I, I think it's worthwhile once in, a while, once in a while just thinking, okay, well, just imagine a person that you know and love and care about and imagine them getting up in the morning and doing their thing and have having hopes and dreams and a life and people around them. And imagine that being taken in the way that it uh, you know, was taken in some way. And I, I think it's important to be able to connect to that because emotions do motivate us. They are our motivation. Um, so if you don't feel about any of these problems, then uh, we're not going to try and solve them. And I think one of the things that's unfortunate is as problems get larger and larger and larger, uh, they start to become statistics and we just become, as a culture, we just kind of become numb to these things. And it's like, you know, well, you know, it's here's another statistic, here's another 20 people dead, or here's another, or if it's, you're talking about countries, it's like, yeah, there's another war, there's another couple hundred thousand people dead or tens of thousands of people in this city. And, you know, you hear it on the news and, and you don't really connect. And I think, uh, I think the the powers that be that like to use uh, the rest of us for as fodder in war um, they're counting on us being numb to all this. So I, you know, again, emotions aren't arguments, but they are motivation. And I, I don't think we should, I don't think we should be uh, allowing ourselves to just be numbed just because the well, problem's it, overwhelming. Uh,
0: well, it's a great conversation car. And I'm not surprised at all that we could have a good conversation. I knew you'd have interesting stuff to say. About the re- relationship between emotion and remaining a rational person. Let's take a call 202-521-1320. Our friend Tarif, Tarif, you're on the air.
5: Um, thank y'all for taking my call. Uh, first, I'd like say free join the signs. Um, we have two comments. First comment is this: uh, Russians and checking. Well, Russians is let I me mean, check.ing is Russians. It just is entering the B- the Batmood area of the second defense line and under the Bats region. The Batmood area connects to coming and in, in a uh, uh, lack of chance area. Once that hub is, you know, taken over, then it will force the Ukrainians to retreat. And it will be hard for any other places that has been fortified where they can hide at. So that's when the... The massive bombardment and tanks are gonna start rolling in to wipe the Ukrainian troops in that region out. And they're gonna push them all to the Dnieper River. Because ain't no more fortifications after that, right? So, yeah, so it, the the war is accelerating now nah, in the um, Donbass region. My second comment is done with the cream. Um, she was a mother, she was a grandmother. That was, you know, that was, and uh, I understand the feelings of the family members. Uh, with that being said, I remember George Gallery say something about that um, people should vote on the crown, you know? They should vote on the British royalty, whether to keep them or not, and to try to move to a more of a just parliamentary military system, right? Well, you know, you have the vote is the vote. You don't have to worry about the king or queen anymore. You, you basically let them be figureheads but without no power. And that'd be a good thing. And also, is a lot of controversy behind how the royal family in the city of London and the, the, the noblemen of Europe, of Britain, got their wealth through, you know, colonies like Africa and India and elsewhere on the planet, which they allowed the noble people, to so-called noblemen, to plunder with the world. And you know, they need to. The, you know, right their wrongs by giving that well back. You know, we got to bring that up, you know. So, yeah, so she passed away today. My heart goes out to the family because I understand. I'm a human being, and but at the same time, you got to recognize how that family and the cousins and the city of London made their money for the past full 500 years, so... Yeah, that's all I want to say today. I appreciate it, Lee.
0: Thank y'all for taking my... Great culture, as usual. And I'm not going to use the day or death to attack the Queen. But I will say, Carter, what's your opinion? I have the same view as I think the Founding Fathers had on monarchy. I'm not a big fan of monarchy. Carter, are you a yeah, watching? I
4: mean, <laughs> uh, well... Uh, no, I'm not a celebrity watcher in general, so I don't know. I couldn't name the Kardashians, and and I probably couldn't name very many royals either. But I will say, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously not a fan of monarchy, uh, and so I, you know, I think it it is a little bit ridiculous that England still has uh, royalty, and and it's 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 completely uh, correct to point out how they've, uh, as the caller said, how they made their money the last several hundred years and the the injustice of a system of aristocracy uh, as late as 2022 still existing. The flip side of that, and I'm not saying monarchy is better, but the flip side of that is, you know, especially in light of Biden's speech last week, you know, you know this is a great example of this. We run around saying democracy, 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 democracy is the best thing ever, uh, you know, you mentioned the founding fathers. They were pretty terrified of a tyranny of democracy as well. And uh, democracy can be just as, if not more, dangerous. Um, the Nazis were elected not just by a little bit. I think. I think when when they took over the you know equivalents German parliament, I think the, they had more votes than the the next three parties combined. Um, the, the democracies can create some horrible, horrible things, and and tyranny by committee is no better than tyranny by a monarch. So I think we sometimes think that the, the antidote to monarchy is democracy, and it's not. Um, democracy, the Founding Fathers wanted to use a particular type of democracy, a constitutional republic that was quite limited, and the goal was to uh, put guardrails uh, up and barriers up against democracy so that it could not run rampant uh, and run roughshod over individual rights, which it actually has in the U.S. So as much as I'm not a fan of the monarchy, I'm also not a fan of people running around saying we need democracy, democracy, democracy. You know, that's not necessarily better. Great answer. So I'm also a fan of a
0: constitutional republic, exactly what you said. And democracy,
4: another word for it is mob rule. Is that right, Carr? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the term is a little bit overloaded. Sometimes people use the term democracy to mean a pure, raw, unfettered mob rule. You know, the people vote, and that's the end. Some, sometimes people use democracy in a broader sense, and they would say, "Well, a constitutional republic is a type of democracy, or it's a democratic system." So I, I recognize that uh, that it can be it can mean a few different things to different people. But if we're going to start talking about um, types of government, I think what we need to keep in mind is the goal. And the goal of the founding fathers was the protection, the recognition and protection of individual rights. And then we can have a conversation about what kind of government does that best. And it's not uh, the mob rule version of democracy by any means. It might be some variant of a constitutional republic, although we lasted a couple hundred years and we've kind of failed at that as well. It's probably not a monarchy, uh, but I mean, that's a conversation worth having. But but only if there's a shared agreement and shared context that the goal is to is to, uh, is to to respect individual rights. Because if you get hung up on the tool that you're using to respect those rights and forget what the purpose is, you can end up with horrific things.
0: Very well said, Carter. Again, not a surprise, but very articulate response. Let's go to another call, 202-521-1320. And the killer of owls, Owl Killer, you're on with Colonel Aaron.
6: Uh, did Fr- Prince Philip get his wish and come back and take his wife with him?
0: I'm unaware of that headline being in the news right now. There are no royal ghosts that I've seen. That's rather Shakespearean,
6: Owl Killer. Didn't he want to come back as a virus and wipe out the useless eaters and the overpopulation in the world? Um
4: yeah. I, so he did. He came back as he came back as uh, progressivism. Look at that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly.
6: Um, you know, the, you know, the whole funny thing is you have you noticed how they've like tried to say, oh, the monarchy has no power, no power in uh, England anymore. Go ask Australia or uh, Canada how much mon- if, if the monarchy has no power, it, it's it's it was still that archaic degenerate family. And, you know, I I'm pretty sure they're not even British. I, I think they're they're German royal. They're actually German or Germanic. And uh, Prince Charles, how many times have they said, "Oh, I live in Dracula's castle. I'm related to him. I'm so cool." Uh, th- that's that's. I mean, you trace it, you trace it all the way back. They trace their uh, lineage all the way back to uh, Vlad the Impaler, and some of sometimes I've seen several uh, interviews where they even believe that they're related to King David.
0: There was a, a movie, I can't remember the name of it, but it was about Tony Blair. It was a fiction film. Actors playing the roles. And I did not know this. When I saw it, it showed when Tony Blair was put into power. Him kneeling before the Queen. Literally kneeling before the Queen. And she got out of the sword and did the whole ceremony. And when you're elected president here, although it might be appropriate to show you as president kneeling before the CIA, we don't do that. And Liz Truss yeah. was put into power two days ago. I'm sure she kneeled before the queen. Did you know that, Carter, that they actually kneel before the queen?
6: Oh, yeah. George Bush Sr. did, too, before her.
4: I assumed they knelt before the Rothschilds, but— uh- yeah, I guess Good sure. Word. Why not the queen? Well played. So so, go ahead, Al what What you're saying? George Bush Senior also was knighted uh, before
6: her. But actually, yes, they do kneel before the Rothschild. child. Um, um, I've I've also heard that when they when the Queen England wants to go to the city of London inside of London, which a lot of people don't know exists. It's a, it's its own uh, uh, city state, sort of like Vatican City inside of uh, um Rome that she has to actually go out in, in dressed as a servant in order to, to get into the gated community. Um, but no, I mean, George Bush Sr. knelt before her too. And, you know, speaking of Tony Blair, and uh, if we can go, we can take it back to the Bohemian Grove. Remember the in, uh email where um, I, I believe it, it it may have been Colin Powell. Some, it was Colin Powell communicating with somebody that said, uh, Tony better get his acting gear and, or he better get his act together because he doesn't treat the the Grove with the same respect that everybody else does. Tell him or ask, tell him to ask Henry, talking about Henry Kissinger, uh, how important the the uh, retreat is. Uh, it was words to that effect in, in uh, one of those Goussifer emails. Uh, talk about Tony Blair. Um, no, but you know if you you wanted to talk about, uh, yeah, a constitutional republic. And the democracy angle was the state where, hey, if you don't like what one state is doing, go to another state. Um, but with the queen passing away, it no, notice who's gone. You, you have Prince Philip, you have David Rockefeller, you have uh, George Bush Sr. Uh, now you have the queen. I don't think Prince Charles or King Charles, whatever, yeah, King Charles uh, is going to be around much longer either. That's why I think that this globalist uh, movement has really accelerated in the last four or five years um, because they see their, you know, as much as they want to preach transhumanism and, you know, uh, there's no afterlife, they're scared of the afterlife. And they're they're trying to get their goals fulfilled now because I, I don't think, I see that in their mind, the new generation doesn't have the same ideas that they do necessarily. And if they don't, they're... they're because the power is there is a power divide coming where the, the East is going to be at least on an equal playing field. If not take over um, or be running world affairs from a uh, manufacturing and economic standpoint. And if they don't get their new world order in, you know, they're not going to have another shot at it for maybe another thousand years. Because there's about a 500 year increment um, between where, where power shifts between uh, East and West. And I think they see that. And, you know, they're, they're well aware of the cycles. They're well aware of that we're in the fourth turning right now, and that's why they're moving as aggressively as they are. Um, speaking of um, the new prime minister in the UK, th- these are crazy. These are crazy people, and there is going to be no end to the war. It, it doesn't seem like they have any. They. they I mean the the new the uh, new chancellor in Germany said that they don't care what the voters say. They will not uh, step aside. They, they won't stop from supporting Ukraine. So the Western leaders are they're They are insane. And the, the monarchy, the queen, they are the it can't get any more obvious than degenerate degenerate filth like that, that are, you know, Alex Jones made the comment today. I wonder he's like, I wonder if uh, Jimmy Saville is going to come back from the dead to attend the funeral. That that is who we're run by. And you just can't you can't deny it that that is who we're run by. And until the you know people of the world have, have said, OK, we're able to run ourselves. We're able to, you know, you we're able to be responsible for ourselves. And we don't need people like you making our decisions. You know, it's just going to keep it's just going to keep going on, unfortunately.
0: So great call as usual. Killer. And let me ask you a question, Carter, are you secular?
4: Yeah. Well, yes. Well, yeah. I pause because I, it, often that means Marxist, so. But yes, I'm secular. Right. But
0: you show some concern, I think, as I do, for the people who are aggressively evil, right?
2: You know uh, that.
0: Not, not just some concern, <laughs> a great deal of concern, yes. Yes. So let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by the great Tara Reed here on The Backstory. back on the backstory and on the radio on 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington DC the Empire of Lies Capital. Joining us now is a great friend of the show podcaster and political activist Tara Reed. Tara how you doing?
3: Good how are you Lee? It's good to be on your show.
0: Well, well welcome back and tell, let's get this Want to make sure people can find your podcast. Tell people how they can find your podcast. Let's do it up front.
3: Sure. Um, my podcast is called The Politics of Survival. You can find me on Twitter at Read, R E A D E, Alexandra. Um, you can find my podcast um, as well on YouTube, Twitch, um, Rockfin, Rumble, especially Rumble. Let's give Rumble some love because they don't censor, and even it Rockfin. And um, yeah, so I, I am still on YouTube. Sometimes my, <laughs> my podcasts have been taken down from Spotify and from Google, but I was able to get my podcast back up on YouTube. So that's good.
0: I find it interesting that Spotify took you down because, you know, they're supposedly, you know, by not canceling Joe Rogan, a bastion of free speech, but apparently not.
3: No, they took me down the same day as we camped and others. So that was back a months ago. So, and Carl Aaron,
0: do us a favor and tell us where people can find your podcast,
4: Unsafe Space, and other stuff that you, you have. Uh, well, the easiest way is to go to unsafespace.com. We've got uh, a bunch of series. I host one called Dangerous Thoughts and another one called Narrative Dissonance, but we have a whole bunch of different series there. And you can go to YouTube. Uh, unsafe Space. Easy to find. Thanks very much, because I want to make sure people, people can
0: find our guests, other where they can hear more of them, because we appreciate you coming on. I I don't like to do that in the last minute, because a lot of times it doesn't work out. So let's talk about we and Carter, we haven't talked about this yet either. Tara, what did you make of Joe Biden's red speech? Did you find it as weird as I did the backward drop? With the marines and the blood red background did you find that bizarre or did you find it a compelling indictment and of trump and defense of democracy be honest Star.
3: what i found it was it was um very telling because that is the joe biden i know that image of him raising his fists angrily and scolding people collectively that is how I experienced Joe Biden. He's not the image of healing the soul of the nation and, you know, the statesman-like image that they were trying to project during the campaign. And I, I think Washington Times just released an article about some of my thoughts on this um, yesterday. It's kind of being overshadowed by recent events today, of course, because of um, the British monarchy but um, uh, and Queen Elizabeth dying. But basically, you know, Joe Biden rules from a space of fear, and that's what the Democratic National Committee and Democratic leadership has decided to do. They have decided to go in the direction of harsh authoritarianism and um, basically scare that part of the voting um, base that supports Trump or that he referred to as MAGA. They're marginalizing them, and like much like the deplorable comment that Hillary Clinton gave, which is very dehumanizing. And this is tactics. This is campaign tactics. So instead of talking about the whole city of Jackson, Mississippi, not having water or running water and um, the need for that, instead of talking about the need for peace and diplomatic enroads to end this proxy war against Russia via Ukraine and, and stop the billions of dollars that are being taken from American working class and European working class to enrich the elite and the, you know, the weapons manufacturers. Instead of talking about real problems, he gave a political stump speech. And it was, you know, reminiscent of, of if you look at some of the Nazi-esque backgrounds, it was very reminiscent. And I think it was very pointed. I think the two Marines, I think the blood-red background, the way he was so scolding and shouting, he was basically trying to tell those people that voted for Trump you know, that they could be targeted um, in other ways. It, it, it's ruling by authoritarianism and fear. And it's what I predicted um, about if Biden and his team became leaders um, because they are carrying out an authoritative re- regime. And so it's actually the opposite. You know, like people are saying, oh, Trump will do that. No, it's, it's coming from the Democrats. The censorship, the tone police, the um, oppression, and the lies, and the warmongering. So
0: great comments, Tara. What did you think of the speech, Carter? <laughs> uh,
4: I'm going to, I should mostly pass on this question because I literally did a three hour show last night about the culture war and analyzing his speech and uh, the meaning of his speech. I mostly uh, am in agreement with Tara here. Um, I mean, it was I took a poll on because uh, it was a live show. I took a poll asking people whether it you know what what it reminded them of most. Most people voted for uh, V for Vendetta, the Adam Sutler <laughs> scenes uh, in V for Vendetta. I think Lini Reifen, uh, Reifenstahl might have come in second. I don't remember. But uh, absolutely. The left has always been about authoritarianism. I think one one key thing to understand here, though, about the modern left is they've solved the problem. Uh, of the past leftists who in the past collectivist ideology was often intertwined with one particular leader. So when that leader failed, uh, that ideology struggled. You see this in Mao, you see it in Stalin, like Khrushchev was better than Stalin, Gorbachev was better than Khrushchev. When Mao died, uh, Deng Xiaoping was better than Mao. Uh, What what the modern left has done is they've captured the institutions first, uh, as Yuri Bezmanov told us they would. And um, as a result, I don't actually view Biden as the mastermind here. Biden is a puppet run by uh, the the Democratic Progressive Machine, and so uh, Biden faltering or failing actually won't stop the authoritarianism. It's authoritarianism, uh, but it's not controlled through a dictator uh, on in the in the front. Uh, that person's just kind of a front man or a puppet, and it's really controlled. Uh, by a cabal behind the scenes, which I think it makes it particularly dangerous. But obviously, his speech was was uh, just rife with philosophical, political, and moral problems, which, uh, like I said yesterday, I spent almost three hours on it.
0: Now, uh, Tara, just so people know, how do you find yourself politically? You're on the left, correct?
3: Um, I'm anti-imperialist, and, and you know, I, I tend to be lefty, but I also, you know, I have different views. Um, I'm I'm not re- really in a box. I was a Democrat. I worked for Democrats for years, and then obviously I don't anymore. And I was always um, really upset about the imperialism of the United States. That's, you know, foreign policy. And that was really my interest and focus. Um, educationally, I was very interested in international politics. So, um, you know, right now the United States has a huge um, – big F as far as um, foreign policy. It's just it's, it's it's awful. And it's basically just feeding the military industrial complex and people a very hand, a very small handful of people are making billions of dollars right now. And I had mentioned this before. And I think with conversations with you, I think that the proxy war that the United States is fighting against Russia via Ukraine is actually one of the biggest money-laundering schemes of the elite politicians um, and the ones, you know, people surrounding them in, in modern history. It, it's going to go down in history as, as just a money-laundering operation, basically.
0: Well, I agree with you completely. And let me just say, send billions of dollars to one of the most corrupt nations on Earth. What could go wrong? <laughs> agreed? I mean, it's acknowledged as one of the most corrupt nations on Earth. When we sent them, I saw Ben Norton said, two hundred twenty-eight million dollars a day, the equivalent of that. carded. did you know the U.S. has sent the equivalent of two hundred twenty-eight
4: million a day to corrupt Ukraine? Ah, uh, you know, I hadn't done the math, but that sounds about right. I mean, they've they've sent tens of billions of dollars. If you do some division, uh, yeah, that that sounds that sounds about right. Um, And you know, and the thing I think we need to remember, you know, one of the things I'm glad that you guys are pointing out the corruption in in Ukraine. One of the things I just also want to point out is it was the uh, mainstream media and and with with prodding, as we've learned from Zuckerberg, with prodding from uh, government agencies that helped suppress uh, Biden's connections to to Ukraine. We weren't allowed to talk about them before the election, which makes this to me all the worse uh, because. It's not like we knew he was I mean, many of us did, but it's not like the public was really made aware of the risk here. Uh, And then here we are uh, shoveling money over to uh, a country that I think most Americans couldn't find on a map. What say you, Tara?
3: That's a good point, because, you know, um, as you know, we we've discussed this when my history of Joe Biden was coming forward in 2019, 2020, a little bit before he was actually the candidate. And then he was. his campaign spent $2.2 million, according to FEC records, to suppress my story alone, paying Anita Dunn's PR firm, right? $2.2 million on one person. I'm a citizen with, you know, and I'm, I'm not a wealthy individual, but they came out with this machine. So imagine how much they spent on suppressing Hunter Biden's laptop story and the connections to Ukraine and some of the corruption around that. You have three major Leaders in the U.S. politics that have children on the board of Barisma that have enriched themselves with millions of dollars. Nancy Pelosi is worth a hundred million dollars. There is no reason why a U.S. politician doing public service should be in, in that much wealth because simply because they're a politician. That is not what um, originally how how our government was supposed to be designed, but yet it is.
0: So Tara Carter and I were having a good discussion earlier. About emotions in our society, we've played a couple a newscaster talking about the murders in Memphis recently and breaking down. So I'm going to ask this question, and I don't want to be insensitive at all, but I think you'll understand what I'm talking about. Are you ever bored with talking about your experience with Joe Biden, with what happened, the assault? are you, you know what I mean, I'm not denying whatever trauma is real, but I'm saying, telling a story over and over again, does that ever get boring for you?
3: Well, it's a lived experience, so it's not a matter of boring. For a long, long time, I didn't speak of it at all to to very few people. Only my family and friends knew, and that's not something that you, you know, talk at, you know, over the dinner table, whatever, right? Um, So, really the story has sort of moved on. Like I've moved on. I'm being seen more as a whole person, you know, because I was able to, thank goodness, do some writing and get it published with RT International before they were censored and they were fantastic. And they saw me as a whole person. They saw they you know, I have a law degree. I have a a lot you know, a lot of background with politics, but with other things as well. And you know, I think for any survivor, you don't want to just talk about that one singular traumatic moment over and over again. And I don't. So um, I've had to do it um, really where I've gone in depth is on the Megyn Kelly interview, which people can look up or with Katie Helper. But other than that, I don't go into great depth other than in my book, Left Out When the Truth Doesn't Fit In, and I describe it there. So really what people ask me more about is the aftermath of trying to come forward and having a political machine come directly at me to discredit me to silence me, to suppress me. And this is, tactic is used on whistleblowers. It's used on, um, you know, it's used on leaders and other, other world leaders they don't like. And, the, and, the, and the, this is what they do. Let's say no one believes me, right? They say, or, or let's say some people believe me. They believe what happened to me. Then what the tactic is for a PR agency is to make it so that you don't like that person, so you don't care what happened to them. And that's what they tried to do with me. They tried to vilify me, call me a Russian agent, you know, slut-shame me, clash shame me, all these things, so that even if there was a kernel of doubt in people's mind, well, if it happened, they don't really like me. And so that's the tactic. They use this with four countries.
0: And Tara, were you ever accused of being an extreme white winger or MAGA person were you accused of that?
4: Uh, I was accused. I was accused of being a Nazi. Uh, yeah. P-
0: forgive me. That was for Tara. I misspoke. Oh,
4: <laughs> sorry. I'm like, wow. I don't. I don't know why you're asking. Uh, obviously,
0: me. obviously, <laughs> you're an extreme right winger, Tara. But Tara, <laughs> no, no, were you accused
3: last week? Last week, actually, in one um, social media thread, I was accused of being a communist um, and a um, MAGA person in the same thread. But they're just. Troll bots. I mean, you know, it's just kind of silly, and I don't know about you all, but, but we all get accused of that. It's, and for for Democrats right now, their go-to is to call you a Russian agent. That's like the the vernacular.
4: You know, one thing that I find striking is as, as um, you know, one of the things that I, I I think the left has is is good about, or at least they pretend to be good about, is caring about. Um, the uh, things like slut shaming and the mistreatment of women and that kind of stuff. And they, they make a, you know, they they talk a lot about me too and they talk all all about people like Harvey Weinstein. Uh, But, but of course it seems like when it happens in their own house uh, it certainly makes me question how much they actually care about any of this at all. And how much of it is just, you know, words to make people feel good about them
3: right. I mean, well, I mean, and your your work has kind of reflected that hypocrisy. Um, you know, you've discussed that. I've heard you do that, as has we. Um, that hypocrisy is pointed and it's purposeful. They use the Me Too movement, like they use Roe versus Wade, which is a very divisive issue for some. And what they'll do is use it for their base to fundraise. They're never going to codify Roe versus Wade. They could have done that, you know, years, decades ago, but they use it as a fundraising tool, right, as a point of Flashpoint. Same thing with Me Too. They basically use it when they need it, discard it when it, you know, like you said, if it's someone in their house. And in fact, they created Time's Up, right? Anita Dunn. Um, And Hillary wrote, former Obama people created basically a catch and kill for powerful men. And it's been dismantled because of all the corruption and the way, you know, because I got exposed during my situation, but also Cuomo. And they got caught with the emails back and forth saying um, from the AG New York discovered the, the emails between Time's Up and the Cuomo staff saying, hey, look at what Biden did to Tara Reed. We can now um, we can now uh, shame a victim on the record. And they literally said that. So that's I mean, yeah, so it's it, it, there's no soul. There's no caring about people's about the constituency's wants or needs. Theirs is simply to retain power, hold it, and keep it, and money as well.
0: Now, Tara, let's talk about California a little bit. Carter, did you know that Tara was, would you call it Northern California? I know where where you grew up, but it's sort of central, sort of northern. Do you call it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you consider that Northern California? Well, Central Coast, we yeah, yeah. So we're talking about the area around Pebble Beach, and I I grew up there personally a couple of years. And uh, uh, do you mourn for California? Because Carter and I have talked about this. I'm a person who grew up on and off in California because my dad's a golf pro, and I am so sad at what happened to California. And I'll tell you guys where I started to see it going downhill. My second wife was into, she had moved to California from the Midwest. And she was into, I'll call it crunchy granola stuff, like raw milk. And when California banned raw milk, she was baffled. She was like, I moved to California because they had stuff like raw milk. And I've seen the steady decline. Do you feel sad for what's happened to California Or what's your take on tar?
3: Is uh, is is kind of demonstrating, um, and I think the tech industry has led to a lot of this. Um, the divide between um, there is the middle class has basically disappeared in California. So you have, like, for instance, infrastructure people that work in the infrastructure or in the service industry that have to travel many miles because they can't afford to live in the community. Like, I can't afford to live in Monterey. I couldn't. Um, it's and it's where I was born. It's where my mother did her art. It's where you know I'm. I did grow up. Sometime on, on, in Wisconsin as well. But, you know, California is my home. I've always thought. It's not anymore. I live in the Pacific Northwest. But one thing I wanted to throw out that I, I read today it was startling is 70,000 people are sleeping on the streets of Los Angeles right now. There are people, 70,000 homeless people um, in Los Angeles, which is the highest number in the history of the city. Um, so we have half a million people or more homeless nationwide. And it's, it's, you know, you're seeing it a lot in the Bay Area and San Francisco as well as Los Angeles. I don't know what the stat is off the top of my head in San Francisco, but that's the LA stat. And um, it's shocking, the disregard. And so they keep electing in these politicians that say they're going to do things like Gavin Newsom claimed that homelessness, getting um, houses for all the homeless was his goal. He's never done anything. Um, in his tenure as a politician, to help with that, I mean nothing, and and you know, and it, it, it's in decline. When you have, for instance, um, rent, the average rent in the Bay Area is forty five hundred dollars a month. Now, working class person can't afford that at a wage that's less than fifteen dollars an hour. So yeah, the Carter to
0: the elite. Do you do you want to defend Gavin Newsom?
4: <laughs> uh, no. I do not want to defend uh, Gavin Newsom. And, and by the way, that 4,500 bucks a month, that's not for a mansion. That's not that's like, uh, you know, maybe a two bedroom apartment. I don't know what that is, but it's not. I'm so not talking about a large thing. One bedroom. There you go. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. And the homeless problem in San Francisco feels really bad, but it's not. Uh, I think it's almost um, it's like almost a tenth the size or maybe an eighth the size of L.A. But but San Francisco is a much smaller city. It's much more compact um, and it's gotten in the 20 years I've been here. You've it's gone from um, kind of a live and let live uh, mentality. People with various politics and ideas and backgrounds kind of all getting along and, you know, relatively clean city. It's gone from that to stepping over human feces and needles, uh, very high crime and completely intolerant of any political dissent. It's it's really declined uh, quickly.
0: And I personally think. The immigration crisis has exacerbated the homeless population and raised rents. But some people don't like, they're all in favor of legal immigration until it hits them. And the mayor of D.C., Marion Bowser, well, let's play that clip on the, the fact that the governor's, she's declared an emergency because the governor in Texas and I think Arizona are sending homeless people, forgive me, Illegal immigrants, not homeless people, potentially homeless people to D.C. Let's play a clip. Hit it.
3: So it's been said, but it's worth reiterating that the governors of Texas and Arizona have created this crisis. And the federal government has not stepped up to assist the District of Columbia. So we, um, along with our regional partners, will do what we've always done. We'll rise to the occasion. We've learned from border towns. Like El Paso and Brownsville. Um, And in many ways, the governors of Texas and Arizona have turned us into a border town. We don't know how long this will take to resolve. We don't know how long they will continue busing. And so the right thing to do here is to be prepared to ensure we can greet every bus, we can get people off on the right foot, we can get them where they want to go. And that will ultimately help them in their immigration process.
0: Tara, are you sympathetic with D.C.'s plight? Is it, Apparently, when they're in Texas at a border town, they're out of sight, out of mind. But are you at all sympathetic with Marion Bowser and what D.C.'s going through, getting a taste of the medicine that Texas faces every day and Arizona? Tara?
3: I think, you know, what we also need to look at is the fact that— um, you know, that the exploitation of some of the big corporations are using illegal labor and bringing, bringing people across. That happens um, in huge amounts in, in California. Um, and Chicano working rights um, are, you know, uh, you know, Cesar Chavez was one of the great leaders in the workers movement to try to get workers rights. Um, and and California was built, um, you know, in tandem with, with the hard work and labor of Legal and illegal immigrants that came, you know, and we are basically um, we came to that land. If you're of European descent and colonized it, and the indigenous population was, you know, taken, you know, destroyed. And then, of course, you know, as far as uh, California goes, at one time, uh, you know, it belonged to Mexico. So, so there's a racism. There's an, an entrenched racism as well as classism about all of this in my eyes from my lens and what it
0: does uh, i should just point out real quickly chavez was opposed to illegal immigration and because he was in favor of workers rights he thought that bringing in illegal immigrant labor was they were scabs basically
3: he thought that what what was what was happening was and i I got the chance to meet him when I was very young, and and I appreciated that chance to meet him in person. Um, And he basically, his position was that huge corporations at that time or ranch owners were able to kind of fly under the radar with what they were doing. And, you know, if you live, you know, in that Monterey area, too, there was also a lot of um, human sexual trafficking. There was a lot of um, crime and then, of course, drugs. Uh, came into that as well. Now, what I was going to say about DC, though, is that um, what that's done is it sort of brought it back to the front of the nation. Tara, I'm sorry.
0: We're out of time, unfortunately. It's a heartbreak at the end of the hour. But great conversation. Thanks for talking to us, Tara Reed and Carter Laren, our guest co host. And thanks so much, Mark Sabota from Moscow. We'll be back tomorrow with more on Christina Freeland on. The back short.